The following podcast is brought to you by Out the House Productions. Welcome to We Make Florida. I'm your host, Dr. B.J. Brunius, and I'm glad you guys came back from another episode. Today, we have a special guest. reason why this is so special is because, um, for those of you who are not familiar, we actually record and tape these podcasts in the Florida Panhandle. So the thought of having a Panhandle elected official coming on the show for an interview is really exciting and is a really good get for the podcast. So we're really happy to have her. I'm glad she said yes. So we have Michelle Salzman, who is the House District 1 state representative, which is in the northern aspect of Escambia County, which is all the way in the northwestern part of the state of Florida. We'll get to State Representative Salzman shortly, but first I want to just have an open discussion about what it is to have conversations with conservatives. I've spoken with a lot of conservatives over the years, and one of the things that I have found particularly difficult when speaking and having open conversations with people who call themselves conservatives or come from the the conservative, small-c conservative aspect of the ideological spectrum, is that it's really difficult to have discussions with people who call themselves conservatives, at least in my experience, to have open dialogue with someone who considers themselves to be a conservative, I have found challenging. I have found the process to be quite frustrating. And in recent years, I've even sort of avoided the conversations. And I've avoided those conversations in recent months, and maybe even within the last year, because of the emotional labor that is required to have the conversation. Not that I am not the type of individual who does not want to put in the emotional labor, but when you feel as though the person is not coming to the conversation in good faith, then it makes that process much more difficult and it makes the idea of wanting to engage in those types of conversations less desirable. And I'll tell you why. But before I tell you why, I think it's important that we distinguish and delineate between the label of a conservative or a liberal versus people who argue on the basis of conservatism or liberalism. So this is not an indictment of anyone who calls themselves a liberal or who calls themselves a conservative because you can have people who call themselves liberal but can still behave in conservative ways. And you can also have people who call themselves big C conservative as a title, but maybe have liberal thought processes. So people who argue on the behalf of conservatism usually are not fun to argue with, (laughs) in my opinion. Not only is it not fun, it's actually quite frustrating because the idea of conservatism is to preserve the status quo. And in some aspects, not even preserving the status quo, but actually going back to a time where the perception was things were better. And there's a lot of opposition to change or innovation, particularly with people 
who value conservative arguments or who see themselves on the conservative side of the ledger, particularly with liberals and not necessarily the title liberal or the political stance of being a liberal, but just liberalism, small l liberal. These are a group of people, and I call myself one of those people who don't feel as though they have all the ideas, who do believe that the days of our future are better than the days of our past, that don't mind changing things in order to make it more inclusive, to make processes better than the way that they are. In my experience, liberals acknowledge that they don't have all the answers, but they're willing to have the discussions and to do the thought processes, to look at the experimentation, to do whatever is necessary to get to a better answer, particularly if the way things are currently is not working. I don't find that same vigor and enthusiasm with conservatives. Conservatives think that the way things are or the way things used to be is the way they should be. And conservatives come to an argument with the belief that the way things are are the way things should be. And so when you are trying to have an intellectual discussion, or for that matter, even a non-intellectual one, when you're trying to have a discussion with someone who already believes that the way things are are the way that things should be, then it's a pointless conversation because then you have the liberal coming to the discussion saying, I don't have all the answers. I'm willing to listen to you to see if you have a better way of doing something. Conservatives already think that they have the better way of doing something. They think that they are the better way. And so when you have one person who's coming to the argument open, willing to change in order to make things better, but the other person is coming to the conversation already feeling that, why we need to change anything? The way we do it now is fine. Then it sort of becomes a pointless argument because one person isn't coming to the discussion in good faith. That's why I've had difficulty having conversations, particularly in the last year or so, with conservatives because my thoughts are if you're not coming to this conversation in good faith with the thought of wanting to make things better and more inclusive for more and more people, if that's not your goal, then we're not here with the same goal. We're not here to converse with the same goals and objectives. I'm here to listen to you to see if Perhaps maybe your thoughts, your views, and how you want to move forward can change the system in ways that make it better for everyone. That's how liberals should come to the argument. That's how I always come to every argument. But I have found that when I come to conservatives, conservatives think the change is the problem. The wanting to innovate is the problem. There is a strong commitment to the way things were, the way things are, and why go and change something? Because it's working for me. Why go and mess things up? Why take the risk of changing something that's good for me to something else that could potentially be bad for me? And that's the other part of conservatism that I find just difficult to manage, and that is the lack of empathy for people outside of our individual spheres. 
I find that conservatives are very attached to their values, attached to their ways of doing things, even if those ways, those values hurt other people. And you can consider yourself a big L liberal with conservative ways of thinking. Whether you were born in the Sunshine State or moved to Florida for the white sandy beaches, most of us want our kids to be healthy, our parents to live well into retirement, and our partners to thrive strongly by our sides. But today, a handful of politicians want to turn us against each other by spreading lies about the pandemic, what our trusted doctors have told us, and what we know to be true about our own health. They do this hoping we'll look the other way while they deny us paid family leave, the things necessary to care for our kids and our parents when they get sick. Then they point the finger at immigrants, teachers, and school boards, hoping to divide us while they give kickbacks to their wealthy donors. But we won't be distracted. By seeing through their lies, we can make Florida a place where economic freedom belongs to all of us, not just the elite few. So I'm taking my shot, my shot at freedom. I'm taking my shot at protecting my family and the community I love. By pulling together, we can elect candidates that ensure we get the care our families need to see us through this pandemic because all Floridians deserve the freedom to be healthy, prosperous, and safe. Welcome back and thank you for staying with us. So we're going to get to our conversation with State Representative Michelle Salzman in a moment, but hopefully you guys have an understanding of why I have found it particularly difficult to have really rich, in-depth conversations with people who call themselves conservative or who argue from a conservative standpoint. Conservatives out there, if you're listening, please get at me. Let me know if you think I have this wrong. Let me know what your frustrations are when it comes to arguing with liberal people. What are those frustrations? Let me know. I want to hear from you. Send me an email. Vote at WeMakeFlorida.com. That's vote at WeMakeFlorida.com. You can also leave a comment on all of our social medias, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can find us at WeMakeFL, at WeMakeFL. So shifting gears to our special guest. Yes, we have State Representative Michelle Salzman who will be joining us shortly. But let me give you a little bit of background of how this conversation came about. There was a TikTok, believe it or not, that went viral, which was basically a snippet of a conversation between the state representative and a journalist in Weekly Magazine. And some of the comments that she made about the Wedgwood community were controversial. State Representative Salzman says that those snippets of the conversation were taken out of context. The remarks were concerning for a representative who is supposed to advocate for all the citizens of her district. The Wedgwood community located in Pensacola is a part of the city that has been ravaged by multiple environmental catastrophes. The community is surrounded by multiple landfills, 
borrow pits. There is some concerns about water contamination. And State Representative Michelle Salzman explains how the community got to where they are. Now, I just gave an entire diatribe on my frustration with having constructive conversations with conservatives. State Representative Michelle Salzman, whose social media handle is The People's Conservative. She's conservative. She says it several times in the interview. And everything I just said was flipped on its head because our conversation was so effortless that I'm starting to rethink how I engage in conversations with people who call themselves conservative. She certainly calls herself Big C Conservative as a title. But what I've noticed is that there are some liberal ways of thinking that she opens herself up to in this conversation. And I will let you all judge for yourselves. But there are some areas in which she truly does a thought process in order to navigate the best way to address an issue in the community. And for me, that's all I'm asking for. She says several times, we all want the same thing. We just have different ways of getting there. And isn't that the truth? Even in your relationships, sometimes with your spouses, you both want the same thing. You just have different ways of getting there. You both want to have a healthy, prosperous life, but you may have different ideas, even within your own relationships, of how to get to that end result. And that's basically the way she frames it. And so it was a great conversation. I was happy to speak with her. So let's get to it. Okay, so State Representative Michelle Salzman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So the the way that uh, our paths crossed was through the Wedgwood uh, community issue. But before we get there, and we will definitely get there, I just wanted to talk about you and how you, you, know, you decided to challenge a pretty popular incumbent, former state representative Mike Hill. Mike Hill served in the Florida legislature almost six years. So before we talk about why you ran for state house in particular, can you just tell me about you know, what made you decide to even enter politics? Did you have a mentor? You know, were you asked to run? How did, how did you make this decision to say, you know what, I think I'm going to run for office? <laughs> well, I'm going to be honest with you, um, and I, I mean, I share this with everybody. It's it's pretty funny. Uh, I had no idea that people were actually groomed for this thing and like picked and all those things. So um, me saying I was going to run was a huge anomaly in, in the whole. It disrupted the system that that, you know, the political world that we have. And I had no idea as a community uh, volunteer for 20 years, serving county, state, PTA, uh, public school foundation, take stock and children, big brothers, big sisters, just all things with kids or veterans or whatever. I just, I saw a lot of need for, um, you know, filling in the gaps of, of advocacy, turning advocacy into action. And, and um, our roads were just for crap. They just weren't getting done. It was like, you couldn't get anywhere because of the construction and, um, I just said, you know, we need somebody that's going to play, play well in the sandbox uh, and still get things done and, and just be effective. We need to bring some of this money back to Pensacola. How do I do that? Well, that's state rep. Mm, well, what's the other guy doing? Because I feel like he's not doing these things. And 
so I put my name in the hat and shocked everybody. I mean, it shocked me. I always said I would never run for politics with my background um, where I came from in life. I always just said nobody like me could ever be in that seat. So um, I was the underdog. I've always fought for the underdogs. That's kind of my mentality. And here we are. <laughs> Well, I, th that's funny that you mentioned that because I, I spoke to, in my research for this interview, I spoke to a, a former Mike Hill supporter who switched and later became a supporter of yours. And she, she switched over to you after she said Mike Hill held a rally in downtown Pensacola. And she said that that rally wasn't about any issues affecting the people of Pensacola. It was a rally to suggest that um, former President Trump's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame be brought to Pensacola. And, and, she, and she said something that stuck with me. She said, he thinks if he just says Trump's name over and over again, we'll forget that his job is actually to go to Tallahassee and represent us. And, yeah. so I, and I bring this up because when challenging an, an incumbent, the statistics are typically not on your side. You know, incumbents usually win re-election. So when you were thinking about the ways you could better serve the district, what were, what were the voids you thought your candidacy could fill by running for state house? I, I wanted to bring um, a more unified conversation to the table, more collaborative type leadership, bringing the county, city, state, federal, school district, all, everybody together in one conversation. How can we collaboratively impact the community as far as, you, you know, dollars being collaborated, efforts, volunteerism, conversations? I'm a big collaboration person. I like everybody at the table and I really like to try to bring a piece of everybody into whatever it is that we do, because at the end of the day, we represent everybody. And I think that we were really missing that. Who we had previously was a big champion on a couple of big issues, and that's great. We need champions on big issues. But in my opinion, a representative is supposed to represent the people and not the issues specifically. And so I think we can, you know, keep our conservative values that a majority of this district have and still effectively help everyone. And so that was that was what I felt like we were lacking. I felt that was a big void. And another thing that he didn't do, he did not believe in taxing. So he didn't want to ask for any of the tax dollars we were sending to Tallahassee. He said, I'm not asking for any of that money because we shouldn't be paying it in the first place. And I'm like, I get that. Yeah, I'm also anti-tax and I, you know, I believe in limited government. But we're doing it. And so I want to get as much of that as I can back. So how much can I get refunded for my district? And so that was something else I ran on. Um, and I certainly brought back almost five million dollars in one session. And we haven't seen even a dollar in years. So it was a nice win for the community. But that's those were the voids that I saw and, and just really the state's lead type leadership, you know, somebody that's really willing to be inclusive in conversation and, and try to represent everybody. I, I I come from an area where most people didn't even know I was a Republican. Whenever I said I was going to run, they're like, oh, you can't win. You're a Democrat. And I'm like, first of all, I'm a lifelong Republican. Why would you say I'm a Democrat? Well, because you do these things. And I'm like, but those things shouldn't even be on the platform in the first place. You know, I'm about conservative uh, spending, limited government, and that's what we should be focused on, not all the other social issues. So um, I, I think that 
the community, I mean, luckily for me, I had been a 20 year full-time community volunteer. So I didn't have name recognition with the super voters, the ones that actually go to the polls and vote, but I have name recognition with the community. And that was a huge catalyst in my campaign. I had over a hundred volunteers going around town trying to help me win this election. It was a huge undertaking, something that's only happened twice in almost 40 years in the state of Florida, which was unseating a Republican incumbent. So um, it was, it, it, I was told I wouldn't win. I was told it was a waste of time. And I said, you know, I feel like this is what I need to do. We need better representation and I'm willing to lose. So um, <laughs> fast forward, here we are. You know, I had another prepared question, but I want to stick there for a moment because what you're telling me about the idea of people saying, what are you doing? You'll never win. It's mm -hmm. actually something I have heard a lot of um, female candidates mention to me when they're considering mm -hmm. running for office and that there's a much more discouragement than there is encouragement. Can you talk about who though who were the encouragers in your life to say, you know what, um, Michelle, you can do this. Go for it. Uh, Frank White was a big one. Um, he was a previous state representative in another district. He's been a friend for a long time. He also ran for attorney general. Um, and then uh, our superintendent, Malcolm Thomas, he's not our superintendent anymore. He'd worked with me for 20 years. He said, Michelle, don't let them tell you you can't do it. If anybody can get this done, you will. And let me show you how I win. And, you know, he went through and told me. And, you know, even the ones I'm going to be, uh, you know, fun fact, the, the ones that said you'll never win said, but I'll write you a check. But. I'll endorse you, you know, so I have, I, I've just, you know, after I grew up in this community and I've given everything I possibly can 40 plus hours a week free every year for over a decade with nothing in return. You know, when you do that for that long and you're really effective at it, people tend to support you whether or not they think you're crazy. It's kind of like my mental health task force that I founded and created and I've been pushing for six months. They're like, it'll never make it anywhere. You'll never be able to get these hospitals to talk to each other. All these, I love taking on a challenge. If you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to do it. So for a woman though, Oh, man, when you go door to door to those super voters, I had so many, even women, not just men, say, why aren't you at home with your children? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing knocking my door? You don't need to be in Tallahassee. You need to be home cleaning your house. I cannot tell you how many times I heard that. My opponent got so much support because just because he was a man. And um, that's when you just you just stick to the facts. You say, you know what? I appreciate that. I got food in the crock pot. The, the kids are fine. I love cleaning my, I mean, I do. And, and that, that's one thing. I mean, I am a traditional Southern woman. I cook for my family. I clean. I do all of everything, all the things for my kids. I get them up in the morning, take them to school, you know, so I do all of that. And I, you know, serve the community and, and having to have those conversations over and it's, it's very tiring, but it paid off. And, and it, it's good because it teaches people that there is a way to be these things, you know, it helps improve the mindset of those that don't really understand. And, and I, I think that's what a lot of this job is about, just really openly having conversations and, and growing as a person and then helping others grow as a person. We've lost that sense of humanity in this world. And it, 
it, it makes me so sad. That's one of the reasons why I formed that mental health task force. Go on social media and listen to how people talk to each other. Do you think they would say that to you if they were sitting next to you? They, they wouldn't, you know, and that mindset of that disconnected humanity is so concerning. So I, I was told I would get that when I was knocking the doors. I was told that would happen. And, and so I was mentally prepared. But um, thank God for my, my support group, my, my great people that were my friends. They'd call me every day and just encourage me to continue moving forward. So um, I had a mixture of both, but I am so tenacious. It, it wouldn't have mattered what anybody said. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what your support system, um, you know, sort of looks like? You, you know, you went into how, yes, you take care of your home, you take care of your kids, you, you know, you have a job in addition to your state representative um, responsibilities. So can you talk about what that support system looks like? How do you get it all done? Um, well, the first thing is you have to be organized. <laughs> you have to uh, trust and reaffirm. That's what one of my friends says. But um, a support mechanism for being successful in the work you know, environment or the political environment would include having um, a group of women and a group of men that you can call on and really trust in and believe in. So when you have those conversations, one, you know that they're um, confidential, and two, you trust that they're out for your best interest. I have a solid, solid relationship with my husband. We've been together almost 20 years, and I think having a true uh, relationship, uh, a true partner in, in life, whether it be a husband or a wife or, or whatever, even boyfriend, girlfriend, however you live, you need a solid partner, that, and, and you need to delegate these responsibilities. You say, this is what I'm going to do, and that's what you're going to do, and, you know, we will fill in the gaps as necessary. And then, you know, your your family, your other family, if you have children, you certainly need to make sure that the children are okay with it. Before I ran for office, I made sure that my husband and my kids were okay with it. Uh, so you just have to, you have to have that genuine support from those folks. And then um, for me, my uh, 10 of the last, the last 10 years of my life have been uh, mentoring other women in business, other women in the community, um, youth. And mentoring has been a big part of who I am. I was a mentor in the school district. I've been a part of Take Stock and Children. I've been on that leadership council for a long time, which is a mentoring program, big brothers, big sisters, things like that. So mentoring has always been a part of who I am. And, and whenever you are, are about that, you automatically have those support mechanisms in place. And so what, what I recommend to anybody is find your tribe, whoever, whatever your tribe is, you find them and you hang on to them and don't put everything heavy on them either. You don't go to one person and give them everything. You find what one person can do and, and how they can help you and you can help them. And then you find someone else that can do something else. And, you know, when you get a whole group of that, it, it really creates a, a successful circle. That, that I'm, I'm glad that you have that because a lot of people um, don't and it's, and it's a privilege to have that kind of support system. Yes. It's good that you yes. outlined that um, so that the people who don't have it know what to look for. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody that's listening that wants help finding their people, I am happy to have conversations or have, I, I literally, at least once a week, I'm having coffee with somebody and we're talking about how they can build their network or grow in whatever 
field that they're in. I, it's just, I, it's my passion to help people that want to grow and be bigger. So I'm happy to have a conversation with anyone off, offline. It doesn't matter what your party is. I have a lot of great friends that are Democrats, independents, and, you know, all, all kinds. And, and we love and respect one another and do a lot of great stuff together. So um, matter of fact, one of my legislative um, folks in Tallahassee is a very staunch Democrat. His favorite Democrat, his his like idol is Carlos Smith, and Carlos is such a doll. But um, I remember when he, he didn't get the internship with Carlos, and, he, and, and his mom was like, he didn't get in with Carlos. Can he come with you? And I was like, to the dark side? <laughs> Are you sure he wants to? Um, but he loves it. He's having a great time. And I remember taking him over and, and saying, listen, Carlos, you're his safe zone. So make sure you're there if he needs you. But um, uh, joking aside, uh, it doesn't matter your party. I'm, I I think that, you know, having a, anybody that's willing to be there for you is, is important. Um, you can find things in, in humanity that, that connect one another. So. So uh, that is a good segue, because speaking of some of your other colleagues in the state house, um, some of them are doing like these weekly Facebook lives, Instagram lives, holding, hosting Twitter spaces, really to inform the voters about things that are going on in the house and to answer the questions of voters in real time. It, it's something that young people have asked me about. It's something uh, that I have actually found very helpful because, you know, not everybody has the time to drive up to Tallahassee and sit in the mm -hmm. chamber to listen to endless debate. So is using technology to sort of bring the halls of government literally to our handheld devices something you or your team has ever talked about or considered doing, particularly with, you know, with COVID and not being able to have, you know, big gatherings and town halls and that type of thing? Is this something that your team has explored or talked about at all? Uh, we've done a lot of that. I think that's how I pushed through COVID. I did weekly town halls from my upstairs bedroom. Um, matter of fact, you made the you made the conversation about the Trump star. I had a Trump star superimposed, had it printed, and I and I held it up in one of my um, Facebook lives, and I was like, "I stole your Trump star, Mike Hill. Your move. <laughs> Here's your stupid star." Anyway, um, I. I have done a lot of it, uh, and I certainly always I welcome uh, virtual meetings. Uh, I don't I don't really like looking at myself, so I don't do a lot of the selfie. I try to. I try. I try. You know, if I could just be a little bit more like Anna um, Escamani, who's always like she is so good about her social media. Um, and I actually watch a lot of what she does because I think it's cool that she actually has the energy and, and capacity. But my dad even bought me for Christmas. Fun fact, one of the things that holds your phone so that you can do it. <laughs> um, but I certainly welcome that. Most of my constituents, though, um, if you look at my demographic of my district, a lot of them don't even have Internet. <laughs> I have rural communities that are so rural, they're Mennonites. Like they don't even vote. They're just they, they just farm. Um, and then I have other folks that are a much older, you know, over, I think my average voter is like 70 years old. It's, and they don't really use the social media technology. I do it because we don't go just for, you know, one segment. We try to touch everybody, but I don't do as good of a job with it. I, be, I believe because a majority of the people that I'm serving don't really use that as a, as a way to communicate. I do a lot of newsletters. I, I publish 
if not daily, every other day on my Facebook page, mainly my Twitter is kind of, eh, it's, it's not really that present. Like if you go to M Michelle Salzman on Facebook, you'll see what I really do. Like, and, and we post regularly, I'm, I'm out in the community a lot and I go to a lot of events. Um, I drive back to Pensacola two or three times a week from even in the middle of session. If there's something going on in my community, I try to be there. Um, but I will, you know, I appreciate that request and, and I will tell my staff that we have to do something. We have to schedule something. And, and I don't know what that means, if it's once a week or whatever, but I will do better at that. I, I, I can certainly make that a goal. Great. Um, okay, so let's let's switch gears. So I wanted to get into the issues surrounding surrounding the Wedgwood controversy, of which th there are many. And mm -hmm. you mentioned in a tweet that the that there were excerpts released of that interview with the in mm -hmm. Weekly Reporter that were taken out of context. And before yes. we get into the specifics of that interview, can you for for the listeners, can you simply just explain, you know, what is your understanding of the environmental crisis that's impacting the Wedgwood community in Pensacola? Sure. So basically, first of all, I grew up in Wedgwood. I went to Wedgwood Middle School and my dad still lives in the home. Um, so it's not an, a community that I'm out of touch with. I, I grew up there. So about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, maybe 30 years ago, developers started going into that area and buying land that was cheap and using it to, you know, take the sand and the soil and, and build elsewhere. And then whenever they got the big holes, they decided they would use the holes to fill in with dirt from debris or debris from hurricanes. And they would just, it was cheap and easy. And the, and the um, local government was not really uh, paying attention because the local community didn't realize that was happening. So you have a local government that wasn't doing due diligence and a local community that really didn't understand what was happening. And then fast forward 10 or 15 years later, you start having super pollution, flooding issues, big time flooding issues, and they're still on septic. So that's not good. Um, and, you know, when you have all these this development done and nothing is really paid attention to for a long time. And so fast forward even more when they started recognizing the problems that were created through haphazard um, permits and whatnot previous years. Now you've got the blame game. Everybody wants to blame everybody for who's polluting the area, who's, you know, why won't you pay for it? Why won't you fix it? This is your fault. This is your problem. And. You know, the uh, Lumen May, Commissioner Lumen May, that's the, that's his district. He it took him a, a lot of years just to get people to even admit that it was a problem. And then getting the partnership with DEP um, as well as the federal agencies and just getting them to recognize that we have some serious issues and then start fining the companies that own the land and, and holding them accountable. They did a good job with that. And now it's almost we move at the speed of government. So when I ran, I know that that was a concern. I just got here a year ago, but um, it's become very it's kind of stagnant. So when I got in office, I just started asking around scheduling meetings because I needed to understand how in the world did we even get here? Why are we where we are? Um, and so that's kind of the, that's the history of it all. That's that's in a nutshell what's happening. It, some advocates in the Wedgwood community will say that the pollution from the landfills is the problem, but a majority of the advocates that are really getting some good footing in the community, really making headway, um, the ones that I'm working with, they're saying that is a problem and we're addressing that, but there's an even bigger problem 
the reason why we're getting sick is because we're flooding. We're flooding in places that have septic. And so when we flood with septic tanks, we're, we're flooding the area with, you know, really unhealthy fecal. It's in the roads, it's in the yards, it's, you know, and that's why we're seeing the smells and the sicknesses and things like that. So um, that's in a nutshell, that's kind of where we came from and where we are. <clears throat> so I've spoken to um, a couple of experts that are familiar with the crisis in Wedgwood, and they sort of separate, so kind of like you outlined, they separate the fallout into three quick categories, like quality of health, obviously environmental degradation, and then the economic impacts on uh, the resident's property value. So just looking at the health of the community, since I am a doctor, um, re residents of the area have reported higher incidences of cancer and other diseases. They feel as though this is a direct result of the, the hydrogen mm -hmm. sulfide leaks, the unlined landfills, the groundwater contamination. Now, as a physician, I, I can't independently confirm if these allegations are true or not. I just want to put that out there. But, but part of the reason why we don't have an answer to those questions is because there, there aren't a lot of epidemiologists and health officials on the ground studying the environmental impacts on the health of the residents. So if you remember, like the, the movie Erin Brockovich, it was the residents that were complaining for years about higher incidences of cancer. And Erin Brockovich, who's played by Julia Roberts, you know, she discovers that the groundwater is contaminated and it affected like this very small two square mile area. So it's it's not unfounded that perhaps a small community like Wedgwood could you know, be having some health impacts. So aside from the county commission, what are the solutions available to you as a Florida legislature to sort of allocate resources to at the very least maybe even study if there are any health consequences for the people of Wedgwood as a result Absolutely. of the environmental crisis? Absolutely. Exactly. And that's where we're at. Uh, the neighborhood association leadership was, was promised a study about a year ago um, on exactly that and never got a phone call. So when I got with them, um, it was a few months ago. It, and I'm going to tell you, I have spent, and this is what I did in that interview with that young lady that was a um, freelancer. It was an hour long interview. I explained to her start to finish all the things that I have done in partnership for Wedgwood, an hour long interview. I was told not to do the interview. I was told she would spin it. And, and I did it. I do it anyway. I was told not to do this interview. I do. I will always, always take in. I will always talk to people. I don't care what you spend. This is I mean, this is just in, it's in my heart. If, if you want to take it in one way, that's fine. I'm going to do it. But I and I, we don't have enough time in this show for me to tell you everything I've done. But what I can tell you is I spent hours and hours in meetings with DEP and um, the local community leadership and the local government leadership and the state leadership and I mean, tons of people because I didn't understand how we got here and I need to help. Like, I can't tell you how compelled I feel to help this community because literally my dad still lives there. So fast forward to where we are. Um, we have a meeting. We had a meeting lined up, but some of the Wedgwood folks ended up got jury duty or something. It was something bizarre and they couldn't make the meeting. And um, I actually had one of them come to the um, delegation meeting to speak about Wedgwood and, and whatnot there. And, and he then, you know, did say that, hey, thank you, Representative Salzman, for helping us, because I don't go around and talk about the things that I do. I just do them. And, and I don't have time to, to gloat. But 
I, I have things set up with um, the University of West Florida who should be doing a study. I am working with them trying to get that moving forward. If that does not work, I will be requesting the study at the state level. I will continue this fight, this conversation, this mission until we see some resolution. And in my eyes, what does resolution look like? The community feels satisfied. I tried to buy Rolling Hills from the county with state dollars last session. It got stopped because of red tape. So I had to stop it. And then I tried to do it before this session and I got even further. So I'm just tenacious. Don't tell me I can't do something. <laughs> so I got even further along. It's my my thoughts are this. I understand that there was wrongdoing. I don't want to point any fingers. I don't care if it I don't care who did the wrong. That's for the courts to decide. What I care about is a community in my district is hurting and they need help. So you guys can work out all of that crap. But in the meantime, how do we make this better? Just forget about all that. How do I do it better? So I offered to buy one of the Rolling Hills is one of five, by the way. There are land there are landfills all in this community. They really, really got one over on them. I, I It's so heartbreaking what that community is going through. But that's just one of them. And I said, I'm going to buy this one. It's the most contentious. Let me buy it from you. I'll get state money. I'll buy it from I'll buy it from the owners. The owners agreed to do an independent um a survey. I mean, we, we, I have been, I did so much. I got all the way to the attorney and the attorney said, we can't do it without a letter from DEP. So I had to halt it. But the idea was I'll buy it and I'll gift it to the community and let them decide what they need to do to make it better. Do they want a park? Do they want a uh, industrial park? Do they, I mean, whatever, it, that's the thing. The community needs to feel proud of where they live. That's what I, I, I need to feel like the community is happy to be in their own place. The other thing that we need to work on besides the study, besides that one landfill issue where, where I, I man, I'm, I'm really not giving up on trying to get that land. But the other thing we need to do is the septic to sewer conversion. And I have meetings lined up for that as well. We move at the speed of government. It's just unfortunate. It's kind of like we have an overpopulation in our local jails and everybody's demanding that they're moved to the prisons because they should be in prison and blah, blah, blah. I can't just snap my fingers. Nobody can, not even the governor. We don't, it, it's a government process and we have to do it. I haven't even been in office but one year <laughs> and I've done more for most of these communities than anybody in any previous, you know, uh, term, but it doesn't mean that I've got enough done. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that I'm doing a lot, but it just takes time. So my objective is um, get the study because that's what the, the Neighborhood Association wants and that's what they need. Like you said, until we get solid scientific proof that these people are going through this, then they can't get any good retribution. And even though it's not my objective to get anybody any money or to win any lawsuits or to keep somebody from being sued, it's certainly not my objective to keep them from getting the truth. So it's my job as a state rep to help them connect to resources and, and help them get what they need. And that's that's all I've been working on really doing is trying to get the subject to sewer money, which is going to take some time. But I think we'll get it in the next couple of years to start that process. Get that study that that neighborhood association has been asking for. I think it's a fair request. Um, and then also let's convert some of these landfills into something that they can be proud of, whether or not they need to be fixed or, you know, because that was one of the arguments I got when I first said, I just want to buy Rolling Hills. They said, you can't buy that. It's a pollution zone. I'm like, well, why can't we clean it up? 
you know I mean everybody wants to tell you why you can't do something <laughs> mm -hmm. <Yes>. but you <laughs> got to start somewhere right but um, but I'll say I have great partners at the county the county commission that have been good to me they're patient enough to at least you know deal with what I'm what I'm pushing at them but uh, the commissioner of that area Lumen and I talk about that community probably once a month for the past year if not more uh, we've had several meetings about it we're just it, it's it takes an entire collection of people trying to push the needle whenever you have a community like that. They, there are so many things going on there. There's so much that they need help with. It's not, you know, one little thing I can write a bill for and get them a little bit of money. This is a lot. What has happened in Wedgwood is a big, big problem and, and it's going to take a big solution. Um, yeah, I was speaking with a coworker who doesn't live in Wedgwood, but has family in that, <coughs> excuse me, family in that area. And, and I, and I asked one question. I was like, Hey, what do you think about Wedgwood? And the first words out of his mouth was how horrible the smell was. And so there's yeah. another, there's another, um, coworker who was listening to us sort of eavesdropping on our conversation. And he says, well, why don't they just move? And I probably, I think that's probably a question that comes to a lot of people's minds who are outsiders, unfamiliar with the situation. You know, they that's not they right. <laughs> what is that like? If, I don't even care. Like, how do you tell somebody you need to move? That's my, these people. This is their home. I mean, there are generations of families live in that community. I mean, that's that's wow. No, we don't. We don't tell. <laughs> no, you don't just move. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And a lot of these people, I mean, they can't even afford. Uh, to buy food. How are you going to tell them like that? You're just going to, where are they going to move to? There's no affordable housing. Where are you going to send them? Like what, what is that? <laughs> no, we well, don't move, but, but we do need to fix it. You know, we really do. Uh, you know, I, I think that the, the democratic candidate that that's been running for years may, I mean, she's, she has a passion and she's just trying to make her community better. How can anybody, you know, be upset about that? Seriously. She mm -hmm. really just, and, and she's, she doesn't go about it very amicably, which is why she doesn't, you know, get a lot of support. But, but she's so, but, but her heart is in the right place. She just wants a better community. She's right. People are dying. You know, you can't prove where it's from. They can't move anywhere else. The water, I mean, everything. She's, she's got all these valid points. And, and that's why I've never publicly, you will never hear me go against her. I don't ever say anything bad about her because I always want to support somebody that's willing to get out there and fight for what they believe in, you know. But at the end of the day, um, she, she's, she's right. There, there's a lot of issues over there and somebody's got to talk about it. You know, somebody has got to stand up and do what's right. And, and it just takes time. You know, the commissioner, Lumen May, has done a lot. He's made a lot of progress. But there's like I said, there's so much more progress to be done. It's, it's going to be a while. OK, so I'm going to shift to a little bit of a toughie question here. Um, okay. I, I was listening to the interview and I, I did hear and you can let me know if it was an excerpt taken out of context. So I did hear that environmental concerns were not in the top three priorities of the yes. voters in your district. Um, That's correct. But a member, so a member of my team brought to my attention that there is a survey on your website and that in that the environment wasn't even is not even listed as an option for voters to even choose on that survey. But, and but so other what is your response? Yes, yeah, other is. There's a there's a checkbox for other. And the reason why it's not listed is because we mailed surveys to thirty or forty thousand people. And we took the top 
of the answers in those surveys, which the environment was listed in that one. Um, and then we put that on there for you to choose from in those top, but we always included other uh, just because you might have another concern. And as well as we're doing, that survey is from last session. We have another one rolling out um, next week. It'll be a phone survey this time instead of a paper, but we're, we are rolling that out. So yeah, it's not listed there because we chose the top ones that were mailed back from the original survey. But I can tell you that the environment is a top priority for the legislature. The state government has made the environment a big priority. Uh, flooding, flooding mitigation is one of our top priorities. We even took money from other funding sources so we could put more money in the flooding, mit flooding mitigation um, funding source. So I, it's a good, um, it's a good environment, not to use that term loosely, but it's a good environment to ask for money for flooding right now, which is why I think that in the next couple of years, I think we'll actually be able to start doing something in Wedgwood to help fix the flooding issues, the septic to sewer conversions and things like that. But that's why it's not on there. I chose the top of the answers from the mail out survey. So I was thinking of, um, there's been some polling done in the panhandle and I, and I think that the, the, what, what, I guess what I have noticed is that when you give voters um, options to choose from, from the list of, of issues that, that, they're, that they care about, I think I've noticed ideologically that when you give them a list of things, you know, the, the left and the right are going to gravitate towards the things that, <laughs> yeah. that, 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 that are important to them. But yes. what I have found in some other polling, particularly when you don't give voters a list, but when you tell them, actually, you tell me what's important. I'm not going to give you a list of things to choose from. You just you tell me what's important. I think uh, from the polling that I've seen, particularly in the panhandle, ironically, it's a lot of the same things when you ask people to list like, you know, health care and jobs yes. and economy and um, education and an environment. Those are the things that actually come up when you tell the voter to list for me what's important to you. You actually get a lot of, of, of crossover. And you so do. I was, I was wondering if you have noticed that in your um, interactions, particularly with voters, that, you know, what's happening on mainstream media is not really what's happening on Main Street. I can promise you that is a fact. I, I, like I said, I have Democrats on my staff. I have, I work very well with the Democrats in the, in the House and we've had Democrats already presenting bills on the House floor or um, in committees it, when many Republicans haven't even had an opportunity. We work very well 80% um, of the time. 80% of our operations are 100% aligned, right? You just said it, healthcare, safety, education. We all want better. You know, at the end of the day, the circle comes all the way around. We all want the same thing. We just get there a little differently. So, you know, we all have our different ways to go, but um, you are absolutely right. And that's why I ran um, off of issues and not off of partisan things. I ran safety, infrastructure, and education. That was what I ran off of. And I was told I'd never win. You'll never win off of that. That's not guns and abortion. You know, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, no, it's not. But the average person in our community would really like to be able to drive down the street <laughs> without waiting for 45 minutes because of traffic, you know, or, you know, the child that really wants to go to that good school really should be able to have that opportunity to do so. So we do. We, you know, we're all humans. That's what I, that's why I keep going back to that. We're all humans. We, we just need to get back to that humankind mentality of just being inclusive and, and having everybody at the table. So, um, and that, and you'll look, if you look at the legislation that I run and that I file, it's nothing that's, there's no red meat or divisive anything. It's very much, I have an Alzheimer's bill. I have a criminal sentencing bill that will keep recidivism back if we could just get it passed. Like, keep the, the criminals from having to go back to, to prison if they violate probation off of some minor um, instance because not everybody can be perfect 100% of the time. Like, I have a lot of really good legislation that I run that has nothing to do with what your party is. Um, I've done, um, I, I got over $2 million for Century. I only have 98 votes in the city of Century out of my 40,000 votes or whatever it was that I got, 98. But yet almost half of the money that I brought back to my community went to that place because they needed it most. And it was all water meter flooding stuff. It was kind of like what we're trying to get in Wedgwood, but a little a little not the same as far as pollution, but the same as far as the voter, you know, the people that because they tell you, don't do this, your voters. Well, hold on a minute. And that's how they got that excerpt from that um, interview, by the way. She asked me to explain what my voters were. Because I said, even though that's not what my voters asked for, it's what was important because it was the right thing to do. And then she said, well, can you tell me what your voters are? And that's when I explained. And that's the piece. That's the clip that you hear on Twitter. She took all of the good stuff about all the things I'm doing and how I 100 percent agree that Wedgwood needs help and we need to fight for that community and put it into that one little piece that made it sound like I don't care about Wedgwood when I've done more meetings on Wedgwood than any other community. But back to back to the point if you look at my legislation i only do things that i only push things that help all communities um i i think that we need a lot more of that and a lot more of these conversations like what you and i are having because this divisiveness this divisive thing we have going on in our nation you know it's just gonna it's literally gonna tear down our democracy and our america well I don't want, I want to stay on this point, and this is not a question I had planned to ask you. Um, so, so if you don't want to answer it, I, I completely understand. Um, are, are there moments when you're on the floor where you feel like, um, as a Republican representative, that you sort of have to toe the line, um, even if maybe that vote is going to not fare so well for the people of your district because i think what we what what i am noticing particularly in the legislature is that everything is just so strict party line votes yeah and yeah. so it it's a little discouraging um, yeah when when i see and, and i feel like what do you need from us as uh voters in your district do you need people to say, hey, sometimes I'm going to take those hard votes because it's going to help you, but I'm going to need you to have my back. Like, what do you need? Yeah. And so I, it's funny you say that because I've, I've done town halls with Republican executive committees and, and uh, Republican uh, institution type uh, organizations. And, and I've told them I compromise. Sometimes I vote yes when I really would have never 
voted yes and and then and I, I'll immediately start getting text messages you can't say that they don't want to hear that word <laughs> yes I can I'm so brutally honest I will always be because if you're honest if you just say how it is you never have to worry about what you said yesterday so um, in this instance uh, I, I would say that there are times whenever I would not have done something but it doesn't mean that it, that I can't put my head on like I'm voting completely against my entire conscience and I you know it's, I don't do anything like that but it's a compromise world in politics you have 120 people from all over Florida and you all have something important to you so you have to anticipate that only one out of 120 conversations isn't going to be your turn to make an impact on your community so when you have these bills that are coming that you're just like, like for here's an example for you. I use this regularly because people say, well, what's an example of a bill? So we have an alimony reform bill. It was supposed to eliminate alum, permanent alimony in the state of Florida. I don't believe in alimony. So I'm like, heck yeah, count me in, you know. But then they put something called 50-50 preemption in the bill. You know how they tack things on because that's how you get stuff moved along. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that men should have equal time share or women should have equal time share with their child. But fundamentally, as a woman in, in who has been an advocate of parents for 20 years, I do not like having custody conversations mixed with alimony conversations. The money you pay me should have no bearing, no conversation whatsoever if you can see your child or not. So I don't like the bill. I like both of those pieces separately. But I absolutely hate that bill. And I voted yes on that bill twice because both both of those components are great. I believe in them. And I and I certainly would not have been the one to carry the bill in that way. I would have carried one or the other. Um, but I voted yes, because fundamentally it's it's good stuff. So that's an example of kind of where where I mean, where I probably would not have done that if it wasn't for this being somebody that you know on my team of 120 that was trying to do something for their community so it is a given it is a compromise com situation and you do as a, as a leader you don't wait until the bill gets to the floor to vote you know about that bill well in advance and you have full opportunity to go talk to that bill sponsor and say hey this sucks and i did that a lot I voted yes on the THC cat bill, but I tore into that, um, the representative that carried it, because I thought that bill was for shit. I said, I absolutely, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to curse on your show. I absolutely agree with caps on THC, just like I agree you shouldn't be able to take unlimited opioids. But I don't agree with what you're doing. I don't like the way you're doing this. I think that we need to talk to doctors and get some science in this, and then I can get behind it. But the way you're doing it, I don't like it. And then I voted yes on it. And people were like, you said you were against it. Yeah, I am. But I'm not going to go against my colleague on, when he's on the dais presenting the bill. I will, we will fix this later. And if you fast forward, you see that bill did not move anymore. It's fine. It, in which I knew, like, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. We don't have to embarrass our colleagues to make a difference. We can work together and make a difference. And um, he is a great representative. I certainly love and respect him. Uh, we don't agree on everything and he's a Republican. <laughs> so that's that's an example of, you know, your own party doesn't. I mean, people try to put you in a box of this or that. And we're humans. We, we're not boxes. We, we all have our own unique things that matter to us. And um, what's important is we got to work together amicably and, and know that at the end of the day, we've gained more than we've lost. 
So I, I asked some of our listeners in your district to send us some questions to ask mm -hmm. you. And our first question comes from a voter named Jake in Ferry Pass. And he's 38 years old. He's a veteran. He identified himself as a Republican. And he says, affordable housing is a huge problem in Pensacola. My mother Big. is retired on a fixed income and can't find decent housing for less than $1,100 a month. She could yep. probably find a place to live for $900 a month, but those places are basically roach-infested slums. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> is, no, he's right. What is um, the legislature doing to make housing more affordable? And what I would add to that, um, I guess, uh, is this is this is like actually a, a pure example of what we were talking about earlier. So here you have... Uh, a guy who's a veteran, who's a Republican, who, guess what, didn't say <laughs> guns and abortion was his issue. I know. He, I, he actually just, he's like, I just want to make sure my mom has a safe place to live. I mean, go Imagine figure. that. <laughs> Imagine. I mean, how about that? Simple human, you know, just simple stuff. No, completely agree. He's absolutely right. Absolutely. I just this morning I was a guest speaker at the Florida Realtors Association and we spent 20 minutes talking about affordable housing and how we can do better. The leadership is committed to working both sides, the Senate and the House uh, speaker, as well as the governor's office to doing a better job at really addressing the affordable housing crisis. And I am hopeful that that will continue. We also have partnerships locally working together to try to create some better initiatives and incentives um, in our own community uh, to do better in that. I have partnership with Scott Loop, which is Florida West. Of course, uh, the, the mayor of uh, Pensacola, Grover, super duper guy, just uh, cut the ribbon on the first tiny home. And, you know, I would love to see some of that type stuff in, in Century where we don't have a lot of community out there anyway. Um, so, yes, we are working hard. If he has any ideas, you tell him to give me a call. I'll take his phone call anytime. Um, we have to get this better. I have a 20 something, 23 year old son who can't even buy a home because it's just not even affordable and he has a great job, you know, and, and we shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't have to live in a way where we work hard and we don't have anything to show for it. So I completely agree that he's absolutely on point. It's so hard to find anywhere, especially, I don't know about other communities, but I know in my district, it absolutely is. And another question we got, which spoke to me definitely, because um, I'm certainly in this situation, um, we got several questions from young people about student loans. Now, I know you're a state mm -hmm. legislature, so there isn't much you can do as a state legislator to address federal and private loan debt. Um, but there are ways our state government, I guess, can make a, a difference in, in how much college and trade school tuition costs and making it more affordable. The last legislative session, we saw, you know, a huge scare with those threats of cuts to bright futures. And thankfully, that didn't go through. Yeah. What are the ways we can, are there ways that um, our state legislature can make college tuition more affordable for, you know, for future Floridian students? Well, just keep in mind that Florida hasn't raised our tuition rates in a long time. And we have some of the lowest tuition rates in the nation. So we already fight hard every year to keep those rates down when universities beg for an increase. So as a legislature, we we already do a lot of fighting for people to, <laughs> to not get tuition increases, you know, and, and you don't see that a lot of times. You, you see when it actually does get increased or whatever, but you don't see the fight that we put up. 
Um, and, and then we also just did the, um, the thing for veterans uh, families or for military families to the grandfather rule. I'm sorry. So if you have a grandchild that wants to go to college in Florida, they can get the red Florida residence rate and the fiscal impact on that has not been um, uh, uh, really uh, pinpointed yet. So until we figure out what that did, we can't really do anything else with that. And I only know that because I've had a couple of conversations with leadership about that particular law that we just put into um, place in July, it was ratified. Um, and then um, conversations about, well, what do we do next? Is there anything next? But we first have to see what the financial implications of that was. But that's, I mean, little things like that, just fighting to keep the tuition where it is. Um, you know, doing that uh, Florida resident rate for the uh, dependents of the grandparents that already are residents of Florida, because we have a lot of elderly that live here. So we were hoping that would, you know, encourage some youth to come in and, and come to college here. But um, certainly it, it, it is something that we should always be discussing. We should always be trying to look for ways to save money for students, to let them come out of college without so much debt or debt free so that they can live independently after they graduate. And are there, are there provisions or anything that can be done to, um, maybe shore up or, or fortify, um, bright futures? And I bring that up because I had a, um, I didn't. I'm, I'm, I didn't bring this question uh, to the floor, but somebody uh, asked it, and they said that you know their tuition. They've graduated college now, but they said that while they were in college in their junior year, their scholar, their bright future scholarship was just cut in half, and so not because their grades had changed or anything. It was just that funding to bright futures was um, what was decreased, and so obviously that resulted in them being cut. I had a similar thing. I didn't go to college in Florida. I went to college in uh, Louisiana, but Louisiana has a similar sort of bright futures. They call it tops there. Um, and, it, and it happened to me as well, not because my grades were bad. It was just that the funding for that particular program um, was cut. And so I ended up having yeah. to borrow. And so is there anything that um, can be done from the legislative perspective to at the very least not have that potential scare that that was last uh, legislative session. Yeah. Um, is there what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? There, there is nothing you can do except continue to advocate on a regular basis and, and keep in contact with the, your legislators because the Florida budget cannot be. Um, you you can't say what you will or won't spend next year. It's a, you know you can't do that because you we don't commit budget dollars to years outside of the year that we're in. That's what that's constitutionally that's what your legislators for. We're supposed to sign off on it yearly. That's our only constitutional requirement is to balance mm -hmm. the budget each year. Okay. So for Florida, there's there is no well we can guarantee you for you know this many years that this program will be in place. Uh, I, that that really has to happen on a continue. You just have to continuously advocate just like other programs and other things can be cut at any moment. You know, I've seen big organizations, big nonprofits that had to shut their doors because they just all of a sudden lost all their funding. And it, that was you know, that was how they ran was through the state. So not that it's the same thing, but it's uh, an example of. It, it just happens. It's just whenever you balance your budget every year, it, you just you can't promise, you know, things outside of that 12-month period. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, that's good to know, though. So public advocacy certainly... Yes, um, it makes know, a difference. People, 
when people say call your legislature, you know, call your <laughs> legislators and call your state senators, this is what they mean. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Like it really makes an impact. I can tell you that when I get a lot of phone calls, I go talk to the bill sponsor, whoever it is, and I say, hey, I mean, I shut the door. I don't go scream on the House floor or in committee. I don't go to the media and tell them. I go shut the door and I say, hey, man, why are these people saying this? You know, what what are, what are we missing here? What are we doing wrong or what are we doing right? How did you get that? You know, so um, it and it does. When we go to our fellow members and we say, hey, this, this and this, they listen to us. You know, we are all on the same team. At the end of the day, we're one unit and we have and I, you know, as a Republican, I, I can tell you that my experience, I have got the best leadership. They listen. They always take my calls. When I had issues that affected my local community and bills, they changed the bills to help fit my local community. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we were able to amend something or, or even make something die because it just wasn't right for the panhandle. So, um, and, and I got the safe walkway study. I mean, there's so many things that the leadership has done just because I just said, hey, you know, I could use some help with this. And they're like, okay, let's do it. So advocacy to your legislator and your legislator going to your fellow legislator and saying this is a problem. It works. It's it's the coolest thing. But you have to do it the right way. You know, you can't go on, uh, you know, CNN or Fox News and, you know, bash somebody and then expect that somebody to take a meeting with you. They're not going to, you know, right, but if right. you go to their, you know, you go knock on their door and you have an amicable conversation, they're going to listen and they're going to try to do what they can, you know, to help you. So um, advocacy, I can't I mean, it really it's it's powerful. It's very powerful. We have a, um, a bill. I won't I won't call it out because I don't want to get beat down, but we have a bill that somebody sponsored and a whole bunch of advocates showed up at all the delegation meetings in the panhandle and were screaming, this is wrong. And and they did such a good job at it. They didn't they did it very nicely. You know, I mean, they were loud and they were very predominant, which is fine, but they weren't, you know, name calling or ugly. And because of that, I am certain that that legislation is not going to move. I mean, it's just it's the coolest thing. We are not even in session yet. And because they use their voice in the right way, they're making an impact for Florida. So I, I get fired up whenever people do good mm -hmm. stuff like that. Well, circling, let's circle back to Wedgwood just for a second. So Congress recently passed a bipartisan $1.2 trillion infrastructure package. And I know mm -hmm. you, in, I, I looked at your website like infrastructure seems to be your love language. It is. <laughs> so, <laughs> it is. so we are seeing, um, at least I am seeing, I'm seeing mayors and representatives, particularly in South Florida, I'll be honest, um, but also across the nation, Chicago, Houston, New Orleans. These are leaders that are using their social media platforms to show the projects that will be underway, all funded by the infrastructure bill. You know, Chicago is expanding their mass transit. Tampa is expanding parts of I-75. So we're seeing areas of the country with helmet and shovel-ready projects written and ready to go in primarily mm -hmm. blue parts of our state, I have to say. So meanwhile, mm -hmm. in the panhandle, I, I, it feels to me that a lot of our leaders are sort of reluctant to engage because they don't want to be seen as giving Joe Biden that legislative win if, if, if there were shovel-ready pro ready projects ready to go to clean up Wedgwood, for example, or you uh -huh. know, an, another project, that project would I have would a meeting next week. Yeah, I have a meeting next week exactly about that for Wedgwood. Oh, perfect. 
Exactly. So I, about that. I mean, I get, that's what I'm saying. There's there's a lot in it. there's a lot we're doing, but there's nothing. I can't say I did something yet. All I can tell you is I'm working hard. Yes, I have a meeting about that's exactly why. And I actually have uh, uh, not draft. I'm sorry. Uh, grant specialists coming to the meeting and things like that, because I'm pretty sure I can find a way to get some of that money. But let me let me shift it for you so you can under, understand the difference. First of all, um, I was on I, I actually took a selfie on the Zoom call with Biden a few months back on when he was trying to explain his infrastructure bill. So it was kind of cool that I was I was on the beginning of that. So um, and I, I kept that selfie because if we get some money, I'll be I'll I'll post that all day long. I'll be like, I got some of the money. But Republicans um, run the legislature. We are the majority. We're the majority in the House. We're the majority in the Senate, and we have the governor. We have the we have the executive branch. So when we want to use money that's coming from the federal government, we don't need to make big posts on social media with hard hats and shovels and whatever. We say, "Hey, I want 1.5 million of that for this." Okay, we got it. You, it. I say, I say, we're bipartisan, and we are. We're a lot better than the congressional community, but we don't do things the same way that the Democrats do things. So when you say predominantly blue, that's why like Eskimani does a great job communicating with her voters every week. And she really does. I love, I watch her, but um, with us, the Republican majority, I just, I'll just shoot a text message to the committee chair and say, I have this bill or I have this funding thing, or I set a meeting like I have next week with the ECUA, which, the, which is the utility authority, the, uh, the Florida Development um, Organization that, that runs here locally, the chair of the county commission, and a couple of others. And we say, okay, if this infrastructure money comes, how do we access it for Wedgwood? So I don't need to do a, a Zoom call or a, um, a social media post. We, we kind of operate a little bit differently. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't. Like I told you before, maybe I need to do a better job and I will actually try to do a better job because it's something that you pointed out and we can always do better. But we just don't operate the same. If you notice, even in the legislature, if you watch committee meetings, the people that talk most are the Democrats. It's not because the Republicans don't have anything to say. We just talk to each other when, the, you know, in, in a room behind the door and then we'll explain to our constituents or we make a post or we send a newsletter or we just do things a little bit differently. It's just a, it's just a difference in, in the culture, I guess, of the way that our parties work. But um, not to say that the Democrats, because I can guarantee you the Democrats are going to get plenty of money um, if it comes through. They're very much um, our leadership is very intentionally fair with the spreading out of the money through the districts. They're very intentionally fair with the legislation that we pass. Now, of course, it needs to be conservative because we're conservative led, but it doesn't mean you have to be a Republican to have a bill heard. So um, I know that was a lot to explain, but I really I, I want to make sure you kind of get an understanding. There's nothing wrong or look down upon for the you know Facebook lives or whatever the media is that you're talking about. I think that's great and they should keep doing it. But it doesn't mean that folks in the panhandle aren't preparing because I've had several conversations with state leadership very specifically about those infrastructure dollars. And if you look at the 21 appropriations projects I've filed, there's like 15 million in infrastructure dollars I've requested because I'm preparing for the money that might come from the Biden administration. So we're doing it. We're just not as vocal. Okay. Now, um, I did see a similar instance, specifically in the panhandle with um, Ruby Red counties were either declining or even sending back CARES Act money. 
and someone brought this to my attention. They're not in your district, so I want to be fair. Um, so I don't want you to. <laughs> I, I just want you to know, I will not spend, send a dollar back. I ain't spending no money. I will not send any money back. I want it all. Those are tax dollars. Like I said before, my predecessor said, I'm not going to ask for any money. I don't want, forget that. They already got it. I want it back. So um, yeah, that okay. that's not so panhandle. We'll take it. <laughs> so that is that is. I was speaking to um, a uh, a conservative who ex who yeah. said the exact same thing you just said. They're like, "Yes, I'm for low taxation, but again, if we're gonna get the money, and we see blue counties using this tax these this tax money to improve their small business owners, and and our counties are rejecting the money, then you know, like, what are we doing here? Like, if we're gonna get the money, then we should use it, you know, to improve our community. So what do you what do yes. you see as the path forward to get beyond this ideological divide and back to, you know, servicing the people, the voters? I it's just doing this, you know, stop the divisive conversations on media, stop pointing fingers at the Republicans and the Democrats. If you don't agree on an issue, attack the issue, attack the approach, but don't attack the and I see this is funny cuz you're you, I say that and, and it's almost impossible to get people to do, but um, I just believe in a unified America. And so um, I'm, a, I'm an uber conservative. I will never promise you I'm going to vote blue or, you know, because I've never voted you know, I, in the one year I've been there. I've been I've, my voting record is extremely conservative and it'll stay that way. And I, I hope that I'm an example to other people in the community and other folks that question that you can have as many Democrats sitting next to you and still be a conservative and still get along and still find things we can work on together. Like we talked about at the beginning of the show with 80% of what we do is unified. We all want infrastructure and safety and education. We just go about it differently. We, we have different ideas on how to get to the end of the road. And so um, just really trying not to be divisive and, and which is why we're having this conversation now because of all that crazy attack talk against I'm one of the most non-divisive bipartisan Republicans in the House of Representatives. And somebody's saying that I don't like people because they're Democrats. Like that was the most I'm like, this is how you lose credibility as an organization when you don't check into what you're I mean, you can attack people all you want, but you should probably double check what you're attacking them on so that you don't lose your credibility. I have so much bipartisan support and I love the the folks in my community, no matter who they are. And it's just, it's mind blowing how quick people are to just retweet or, you know, just automatically assume that somebody's being honest. You, you, you can't do that. You have to vet the people that you stand behind or else you stand for nothing to. And so I, I I hope, I pray, I, I do pray that we have a more unified front um, in the nation. I can tell you that my capital experience in Florida has been very good. I think we have a great leadership team. They work well together. The parties work well together. You know, um, of course, we're conservative, but we're, we're, we're kind to one another. We hug each other. We hang out. We go out together, you know. It's not what it seems on Twitter. It's a lot, it's, it's a lot more welcoming and open than that. And um, I just I, I hope that people just take a breath more often. Maybe they need to, you know, a counselor, you know, access to some mental health, which is <laughs> one reason why I started the task force. But um, yeah, so 
just we just need to be more unified and work together. We can agree to disagree just because you and I don't agree on what should or shouldn't happen with guns doesn't mean that we can't agree on 80 percent of everything else and sit down and break bread together. So. Well, I'll, I'll close with this, because um, a lot of the questions that I got came from um, Republicans, because your, your district is, is honestly heavily Republican. And, yes. But I did get a couple of questions from Democrats, and so I do want to give them a little bit of airtime. And one of the Democrats, uh, the, the question that spoke most to me was, was this one. Um, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going to paraphrase. The question, sure. the, the question was simply, she doesn't need us to win because no matter who runs in, my, in, in that district, mm-hmm. because it's so heavily Republican, the, the, the thinking was that you don't need them to win and so you're not going to listen to them and what their, what their concerns are will not matter to you uh, because at the end of the day, every Democrat could vote for your opponent and they would mm-hmm. still lose. And so and that, that, that and is... So that's, and so that's yeah. what I wanted to get your response to mm-hmm. that question, because after speaking to you, I, I certainly don't get that feeling from you, but I want, <laughs> I but I want the I audience mean, to hear your thoughts on that. Right. And that's funny, because like if you look at the bills I passed last year, I got more funding for the town of Century, which is only 98 votes than I did any other part of my community. And I was even told, don't go after that money. They don't vote over there. You need to put something where the voters are. And I said, well, gosh, I didn't get here because the voters wanted the money. I got here because the community needs a voice. I've done two major food distributions of 40,000 pounds of fresh fruit, fresh meats, fresh vegetables to the minority communities in the north end of the county. Two, not been done in years years they haven't gotten fresh food they get the 10,000 pounds of the MREs here and there but not a farm share and I didn't do it because they voted for me because they didn't I didn't do it because I need a vote because I don't but they're exactly right the demographics of our voters I have one of the reddest districts in the state of Florida I think I'm number three I don't need a single Democrat vote every Democrat in my district could vote for my opponent and I would still win they are right, but it's not about that. I actually got more votes than Trump, which means I got a lot of Democrat votes. I get, a, I get votes from all across the party line. I don't run off of a party. I run off of principles. And I think people respect that. And we have to represent all of our people. I help everybody in my, I help people that aren't even in my community. It does, you don't have to be in my district for Michelle Salzman to help you. I didn't get in this seat. I'm not a trained politician. I'm not here for power. I saw a need for an advocate that would bring our community together and create collaborative conversation. That's literally what I ran on. And that is who I am. That's who I'll continue to be. I'll continue to do a lot of efforts in the communities that whether they have voters or don't have voters, none of that matters. And that's what I explained to that lady on the interview, even when she spliced it and when she asked me, well, what does your voter mean? Who are your voters? And then she only runs that piece. I went through all of this with her. And I'll, you know, and I'm saying it to you too. We're about people. We have to be people. We have to help each other. That's why we're here. We are representatives 
of the entire community, not one segment of the community, even not even the party. It could be anything. What do we do? We represent the people that want school choice or the people that want public school. You know, there's so many ways to, to break this down. But at the end of the day, we're supposed to help everybody. And and I work really, really hard to do that. I take meetings with everybody. I listen to everybody. I try to help as many people as possible. I feel like I've been very open and honest with you in some of these parts of the interview that I've done with you today. You could take and splice and make it sound amazing for whatever party you wanted it to. I'm sure my opponents will have fun with this recording, but um, at, at the end of the day, it's about people. And no matter what people push out, I will continue to fight for everybody. I came from a PTA background where the the um, motto, the the mission is all children, you know, every child, one voice, you know, and, and I mean that wholeheartedly about all people. We're, we are all here and we all should be represented and loved and respected. And so I'll continue to do that, whether you vote for me or not, you know, especially in the primary. I mean, I had a majority of Republicans that definitely didn't want me in office. They wanted my other guy who was really big on guns and and anti-abortion, um, you know, they really, really, really wanted him. And and then they come to me after I win the primary and I know they didn't vote for me. <laughs> I know, you, I mean, I won, but I mean, I only won by like 15%. So a, a majority of folks out there didn't even want me to be their Republican nominee. So um, it doesn't just mean Democrats. It's, it's all, it doesn't matter who you voted for. What matters is you live here, you pay your taxes and you deserve to be treated fairly. Well, I appreciate you coming to the podcast. Uh, this has yeah. been great. This has been enlightening. I'm so happy. And and hopefully the people who told you not to do it, <laughs> hopefully you <laughs> feel reassured that, you know, I was fair and that I asked really good questions. Um, and hopefully you'll come back. Oh, you know, I will. I'll always I'm always willing to go on anybody's show or interview and um, people, they, they just they're just worried about me. They always want to look out for me. And, you know, they see when I get attacked unfairly and they're like, that's not you. I don't understand. Why did you do that? I'm like, it's okay. And I'm not even upset. Like I'm really not upset about all those things that happened because if you know me, if you live in my district, if you live in my community, you know that, that I would never say things like that. I would never, if, I mean, just go look through my newsfeed for about, you know, five or six posts, you'll never see a divisive anything. I don't share anything divisive. If even, even in my own party or, you know, all the way up nationally, if they do things that I don't agree with, I don't share them just because they're in my party. I only share what I feel good about. So um, I, I think that in the end of the day, the who I am and what I do will always come out on top. So if I'm not the right person for the seat and I get unseated by anybody, even if it's a Democrat, then I will accept that and, um, you know, move on. But uh, it, it's nice that people look out for me. They, like, like we talked about the mentoring thing, it's good to have that, that tribe, that circle of people. And um, certainly it's a big blessing and I'm thankful for it every day. But thank you for having me today. Thank you for all that you do and for, you know, even reaching out and saying, okay, fine, let me, let me hear what you have to say. I mean, you didn't have to do that. So um, you, you never know what I would have came on here and said. So I appreciate you as well. State Representative Michelle Salzman, it's been a pleasure. Have a good day. Thank you. We want to give a special thanks to State Representative Michelle Salzman for coming on the podcast. I have tons of thoughts about our discussion, all good, by the way, and I'll be happy to share those in our next podcast. If you have questions, thoughts, concerns, critiques of our conversation, you can contact me personally. Email me at vote 
at WeMakeFlorida.com. That's vote at WeMakeFlorida.com. And we'll get back to you. You can also contact us on all social media. That's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. We're all there. Our social media handle is at WeMakeFL. That's at WeMakeFL. And finally, we can't do this without your support. So what we ask of you is to share this podcast, listen to it, tell your friends and your colleagues about it. These are interesting discussions that we're having. Leave a five-star review. We love reviews. We love critiques. We actually answer them. So give it a shot. Also, if you'd like to become a paid subscriber, you can always scroll to the bottom of the description where you can register as a paid subscriber. You can donate $5, $10, $20 a month, and you'll get the podcast before anybody else does. Once we have enough subscribers, we can transition from podcasting to live stream. It's something that I really want to do, but I can't do it without your help. I really do appreciate the listeners. This would not exist without you. So until then, guys, bye-bye.